Good morning, everyone. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this day you have given us. Father, we thank you for this place and the opportunity to come together to study your word this morning. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, and we'd ask that your Holy Spirit might make it clear to us this morning, that it might impress upon our hearts and minds your will for us, your truth for us in our lives. And we ask this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to our text for this morning found in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel 3. You, re- you may remember, some of you may remember, that in the last two times that I have spoken, uh, we focused on what the Bible has to say about how Christians, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, are to live in today's world. Now, it's important that we clarify that term Christian, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. A true Christian is one who has humbled himself before God, understanding that he or she is guilty of breaking God's law and failing to live up to God's standard of perfect righteousness. He accepts that he is well-deserving of the consequence, which according to God's righteous justice is death, eternal punishment in hell. And having repented of his sin, he then believes in the good news, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news is that when Jesus was crucified on the cross and then died, was buried and rose from the dead, he took the punishment for the sin of all those who will believe. Jesus offers this gift of eternal life to all who will repent and believe in him. And it is a gift It's not a reward for what we do here on earth. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. A Christian, then, is a believer, one who believes in this good news, and then is saved by God's gracious gift of salvation. He or she has been redeemed from sin and then is credited with all of the righteousness of Jesus Christ in God's eyes and then is sanctified, transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit who takes up residence within them. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. The Christian's life has been changed, and he or she now pursues a life of obedience to the commands of Jesus as one of those who follows him. Romans 6.19 explains, For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. This is the true believer. If this description of a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't identify you, then Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? And if you are not a Christian, then I urge you to consider the claims of Jesus Christ today 
and also the eternal consequences for rejecting his gift of salvation. Paul pleaded with the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 6. He said, In working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now, you also may remember that I gave the title Spiritual Living in a Secular World to our two previous studies. And so this morning, we're going to continue with that theme. In our study, we've been learning about Daniel and his three friends who were surrounded by the pressures and influence of a society that didn't obey or even recognize the one true God. And yet, they pleased God with their integrity and obedience. 1 Chronicles 29, 17 tells us that God is pleased with integrity, which is defined as soundness of and adherence to moral principle and character. To have integrity is to be the same person all the time, no matter the situation, no matter who is around. You will remember that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were just young teenagers, probably about 14 years old, when they were taken captive by the Babylonians. They were enrolled in an immersive three-year educational program, which aimed to change their beliefs, their customs, and their personal habits. But they chose not to defile themselves, deciding to be obedient to the one sovereign God, no matter the cost. They maintained their integrity throughout this educational indoctrination, even in the face of danger, and mounting social pressure. All four graduated at the top of their class, but they acknowledged God's sovereignty, humbly recognizing that it was God who had given them knowledge and intelligence and caused them to succeed and prosper. At the end of the three-year program, the king found them to be without equal. There was no one else like the four of them. In fact, they were ten times better not just when compared to their fellow graduates, but they were better than anyone else on the king's staff in his entire kingdom. In chapter 2, we learn that Daniel was able to tell Nebuchadnezzar the content of his troubling dream, and also to give him its interpretation, which was a look into the future. All the while, Daniel was careful to give God the credit and to acknowledge him as the sovereign God of the universe. At the end of chapter 2, Daniel was promoted to be ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And then you remember that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his three friends, were appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon at Daniel's request. And Daniel was at the king's court. So that brings us up then to our text for this morning in chapter 3. Let's take a look at verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So here we see the next part of the story. Nebuchadnezzar the king, after his dream about the great statue, orders the construction of an image that is 60 cubits, that's 90 feet or 27 meters high, and 6 cubits, that's 9 feet or 2.7 meters wide. Why do you think the dimensions are recorded for us here in the book of Daniel? 
Well, certainly so we will note its impressive size, but it also gives us verification of the accuracy of the account. The Babylonian numeric system was based on 60s and 6s, not 10s. Their number system was base 60, not base 10, like our decimal system. We still use part of their system today. For example, we have 360 degrees in a circle. We have 60 minutes in an hour, and we have 60 seconds in a minute. The image was probably overlaid with gold, which was common practice in Babylon. The image may have been a representation of the human form of Nebuchadnezzar, or it may have been an obelisk used to represent him. The dimensions probably included a pedestal base, since uh, a representation of the human body would not be proportional based on a 10 to 1 ratio. You notice at the end of verse 1 there, it says, he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. In 1863, the French archaeologist Jules Auper discovered a pedestal such as this about six miles southeast of Babylon on a small tributary of the Euphrates River called the Dura. It was a 14-meter square brick structure. That's about 45 feet square. And it was about 6 meters or 20 feet high. Who knows? Perhaps this was the base. Now, commentators and historians have speculated as to why Nebuchadnezzar would have this image built. So they suggested first, perhaps it was to unify the empire through the worship of the king, similar to emperor worship in Rome. Second, it would lend itself to a practical test of loyalty to the king. Third, it could be a strategy to prevent religious factions from developing and dividing the kingdom. But fourth, and perhaps this is the most plausible, to glorify himself, the result of his unchecked pride. In any case, all of the empire's administrative leaders were ordered to come to this ceremony. Look at verse 2. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sent word to assemble the satraps, some say satraps here, the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. In this verse, we see these administrators listed in descending order of importance. First, we have the satraps. These are the provincial governors. The word actually means country protector. Second are the prefects, the military chiefs. Third, the governors, the civil administrators. Fourth, the counselors, who are the lawyers. Fifth, the treasurers, the keepers of the funds, the collectors of the taxes. Sixth, the judges, the civil arbiters. Seventh, are the magistrates. These are the lower court judges. And then eighth, all the rulers of the provinces. This is kind of a catch-all. Anyone else who has a leadership position is also ordered to come. Verse 3. Then the satraps, the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Does a question come to mind here? Where was Daniel? We aren't told. However, you remember at the end of chapter 2, we're, we're told that Daniel was at the king's court. It may be that Daniel was left in Babylon to mine the store, so to speak, when Nebuchadnezzar is out of town on the, the plain of Dura. We can only suggest scenarios to explain his absence because we aren't told. He was not there 
because he's not mentioned, and as we will see, he's not there to protect his three friends. Now, we see this list of people repeated in verse 3. Why? Well, a basic rule in literature and in Scripture is that repetition is used for emphasis. And so what we see here is that everyone was commanded to attend, and everyone obeyed. This is very important for what comes next. When you are the only one in a group who stands up for what is right, or who refuses to compromise, there is tremendous pressure to conform. The pressure to conform and to be part of a group is very, very strong. In the 1960s, the television show Candid Camera conducted an experiment in social conformity. That is, how our behavior can be influenced by what others around us are doing. They filmed an experiment in an elevator. Everyone in the elevator except one person was a Candid Camera staff member. All of the Candid Camera crew turned to face the rear of the elevator. And of course, the unsuspecting subject felt compelled to do the same. Take a look. To conform... That poor man did what everyone else around him was doing. It's a classic example of the enormous social pressure that is exerted by a group on an individual or a minority. We have a natural inclination to conform to the group. And it's the same 60 years later for us. And it was the same 2,600 years ago on the plain of Dura. There is tremendous pressure on everyone, believers included, to conform to the world's beliefs, ideas, and standards. And you will remember that we've looked at seven biblical principles for maintaining our integrity as believers. They're listed here. We have these principles that we can follow in order to resist this tremendous pressure. Let's continue on now to see what happens next in our text, verse 4. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. So here we see that the instructions are made very clear. And we also see that the royal orchestra is described in some detail. A lyre is a stringed musical instrument that could best be described as a U-shaped harp. A trigon is a small triangular harp. And a psaltery is either a zither or a dulcimer. Now, we also saw in that verse that the consequence for non-compliance is also made very clear. You might ask, what was a furnace doing out on the plain of Dura? Well, the furnace was in reality a kiln with several chambers. In the Babylonian Empire, these kilns were built close to where there was an adequate supply of clay. Ceramics and brick making were quite common in Babylonia. In fact, samples of Babylonian ceramics can be seen in museums around the world. The kiln was built with a fire chamber at the front and with other sections farther away then for glazing and cooling. And kilns had been found with ramps built so that fuel could be added to the fire from a side entry. 
Verse 7, therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Everyone gets their cue, everyone knows what they are to do, and everyone does it, except for three men. Now, notice who makes the first accusation. Verse 8. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You yourself, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast in the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Who is it? It's the Chaldeans, the astrologers, the king's wise men who accused the Jews of noncompliance. Why would they do this? After all, it was a Jew who had saved their lives only a short time ago. Well, we see a clue in verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon. Remember Daniel's request at the end of chapter 2? It would appear that the Chaldeans were consumed with envy and jealousy, and they were motivated to destroy these three men. What are their accusations against the three? Well, first, they say, these men, O king, have disregarded you. That's not true. They appeared for the ceremony. They honored the king until the moment that they would not bow down. Second, they say, they do not serve your gods. This, though true, was not the real issue here. Third, or worship the golden image you've set up. This is accurate. This was the issue. So here we see a common occurrence when you are accused of something, especially unjustly. Several charges are all brought at once, all lumped together. Some may not even be true in order to make the issue seem more serious. And what was Nebuchadnezzar's response? Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. He was in a rage. And the Hebrew word that's used here means a violent rage. The root word here is to quiver. He's so angry, he's shaking. We've seen this before in chapter 2. Remember his response there, verse 12? It would seem that Nebuchadnezzar is still badly in need of some anger management training. Now, notice Nebuchadnezzar's response when he comes face to face with the three men. Verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Remember that originally the consequence that we saw in verse 6 was to be immediate. Nebuchadnezzar may now have found himself in a very difficult spot. He knew who these three men were. After all, he'd met them before. They were ten times wiser than any of their colleagues. And he knew they were friends of Daniel. He gives them the benefit of the doubt. Is this true? He doesn't repeat the charge of disregarding the king because he knew it wasn't true. Instead, he hopes to give them a way out. He gives them a chance to explain and to comply. Verse 15, now if you're ready, in other words, oh, perhaps you didn't hear the cue. Uh, At the moment you hear the music, I'll give you another chance. Perhaps he's hoping that they didn't understand or that they weren't paying attention or now that they've made their point but are actually faced with the consequence that they will change their minds. 
But then we see the real problem that Nebuchadnezzar has. But if you will not worship, you will immediately be cast in the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And note this, and what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? We see that he has enormous pride in himself. Where is the man who said in Daniel 2.47, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings. Now, let's look at the response of the three men, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. They're not being disrespectful. There was just no excuse to be made or no apology to be given. They weren't going to do anything differently given a second chance. What pressures or temptations did these three face? Well, there were several. The first was the erosion of their faith to actually worship the image. Second, to compromise their faith, to to worship, oh, just this once and to not really mean it. Third, to go along with what everyone else was doing, including the 50 or 75 others from Judah who were likely there as well. Fourth, to conceal their faith, especially when they're asked directly about it in verse 14. Fifth, to to lose their government positions, their their plum jobs and all the benefits. And sixth, obviously, the, the most serious, the imminent danger of losing their lives in this terrible way. But how did they respond in the face of temptation? Look at verse 17. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Their immediate response indicates that their convictions were deeply grounded and strongly held. Their faith in the one sovereign God held in the very worst of situations. Strongly held convictions don't develop instantaneously. Spiritual muscles don't suddenly appear on demand. No, it takes a conscious decision and development over time to prepare for a situation such as this. Now note their conviction is clearly stated in verse 17. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Then notice what they say next in verse 18. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. There was no hesitation or indecision. They respond with, we are not going to do this no matter what. And so the question before us this morning then is, how does one develop the kind of courage and conviction shown by these three young men? Well, when we study scripture, we can find at least five scriptural principles that can help us in this area. To begin, we must have a proper perspective on God's sovereignty. God alone is worthy of our worship and our obedience. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. He is the creator, and therefore he is the sovereign ruler over all his creation. 
that includes us. He is able. He can deliver us if he chooses to do so. But he may not. And even if he does not, we will not bow. Our response is not about us. It is about the one sovereign God. The three men hoped for the best, but they also considered and planned for the worst. We, too, must be willing to accept the consequences of standing firm in our faith. And to do so requires a proper view of God, his standards, his sovereignty, and eternity. Paul said in Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And so he could say in 2 Corinthians 4, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. Paul could say this because he understood what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. These passages and many others help us to have a proper view of God, his standards, his sovereignty, and eternity. Second, we must have a proper understanding, a biblical understanding, of trials. Notice what Peter says in 1 Peter 1. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in James 1, James tells us to consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Paul explains why in Romans chapter 5. He says, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And so first, we must have a proper perspective on God's sovereignty, and second, we must have a biblical understanding of our trials. Third, we must use God's word, which which is a living and active weapon. Hebrews 4.12 explains that the Bible is not just a collection of stories or good moral literature. No, it is the word of God, and therefore it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so understanding this, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. In Joshua 1, God told Joshua, Be strong and courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. 
Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Fourth, we must recognize and tap into God's source of strength. The writer of Hebrews explains in Hebrews 2, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. The sanctified life is not a matter of the power of positive thinking or fortunate circumstances. No, Paul tells us in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And then a few verses later in 19, he says, And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And therefore the reality is, as 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, no temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. And part of our growth in courage and godly convictions is to heed the warnings that we find in Scripture. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before stumbling. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Finally, the fifth principle. Great courage and strong godly convictions don't develop overnight. This is not an event, but rather it is a process that requires some time and effort. Notice how Paul describes this to his protege, Titus, in Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Peter tells us to keep on keeping on in 1 Peter 2. He says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds... As they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Paul uses a military metaphor in 2 Timothy 2 to get the point across. He uses that word suffer, which has the idea of enduring hardship over time. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who would enlist in him as a soldier. That's a lot of scripture to sum up 1 Peter 1, 15, 16. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So then, we have these five scriptural principles, biblical truths to follow in order to develop great courage and to hold firmly to godly convictions. We must first have a proper perspective about eternity and God's sovereignty. Second, we must understand trials from a biblical perspective. Third, we must know and obey God's word. Fourth, we must recognize and use God's source of strength. And fifth, we must follow God's training plan. Let's go back to our text, verse 19. 
see Nebuchadnezzar again. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Now, did you notice this? There's some repetition again. Remember verse 13? Nebuchadnezzar was already in a rage and filled with anger. Now he is filled with wrath. The root word here is actually a word for poison causing a fever. He is so angry that it has changed his physical appearance. He's out of control, and he orders the fire to be made seven times hotter. We see here the use of a literary tool called hyperbole. Use of a literary tool called hyperbole. Seven is a number that is used to indicate completeness. And so he orders the fire to be made as hot as it possibly can. Verse 20, And he commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace a blazing fire. So we see some more detail here. Certain valiant warriors are commanded to tie up the three men. Why would this information be given to us? Well, perhaps to ensure that we know that it was not humanly possible to escape. This is proof that later on there was supernatural power involved. These were strong, capable men, able to stand up to adversity. This is an important point when we later see what happens to them. Verse 21, Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes, and were cast in the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. Again, we see that the men are tied up. Why is their clothing described? They were wearing the formal clothing that was appropriate for the ceremony. This was proof of their obedience to the king. They were obedient in everything possible up until the point where they could only obey God. It's another detailed account that supports the accuracy of this story. It also shows the haste in which they were tied up. Verse 22, For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That word urgent in Chaldean means hasty or severe. The heat kills the men who carry up Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah and throw them into the furnace. Therefore, it's impossible for anyone to survive. Verse 23. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Here we see the repetition again, still tied up. In the reader's mind, if the valiant men who carried them up there were killed outside the furnace, what's going to happen to those who were uh, thrown in and they're still tied up? Verse 24, Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He responded and said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said, Certainly, O king. Nebuchadnezzar is astounded or amazed. The root word here is consternation. It means sudden, alarming amazement or dread that follows after confusion or paralyzing dismay. Nebuchadnezzar stood up in haste. And the root word here means to tremble inwardly or to terrify. Verse 25, he answered and said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Could it be that Nebuchadnezzar is the only one who sees that fourth person? 
Again, we see repetition. Verse 24, they're bound or they're tied up. Verse 25, now they're loosed. And here we see five important points. First, there are now four in the furnace. Second and third, they are loosed and they're walking about. Fourth, they haven't been harmed. And fifth, the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. In Nebuchadnezzar's words, he's not human. Who is this fourth person? Well, some speculate that it's an angel. Others suggest that perhaps it's a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we aren't told who it is. What we do know is that Nebuchadnezzar recognizes something supernatural about him. Perhaps this is what Peter was talking about in 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because, note, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Have you ever had that strange sense of peace that comes in the midst of terrible circumstances? Paul promises in Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The Czech theologian Jan Hus was a church reformer and a key predecessor to the Reformation. His teachings had a strong impact on Martin Luther. When he was burned at the stake for heresy against the doctrines of the Catholic Church in 1415, this account was recorded by the eyewitnesses who were there. The flames were now applied to the bundles of sticks piled up to his neck. Hus sang a hymn was so loud and cheerful a voice that he was heard through all the cracklings of the combustibles and the noise of the multitude. At length, his voice was interrupted by the severity of the flames, which soon closed his existence. But Huss was not rescued from the fire. Let's return to our text, verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire, He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. So here we have further proof of Nebuchadnezzar's utter amazement. He personally, he's the king, and he personally goes as close to the door as he can and orders them to come out. Now notice how he addresses them, servants of the Most High God. The word that he uses here for God is a word for any deity, just indicating power and might. Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that their God is the most powerful of all gods. Verse 27, And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. The inspection takes place by all the key officials, and they confirm that the fire had no effect on them at all. Here we see another detailed account. The description includes their bodies, their hair, and their trousers. Now, if you have ever been close to a campfire, even for a few minutes, you know what happens. For the rest of the evening, everyone knows where you've been. And yet... The inspectors crowding around them can't even smell a whiff of smoke on them. 
why are we told this? Well, this was not a chance occurrence or some unusual event. No, this was a supernatural intervention by the one sovereign God who can protect completely. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Now, very sadly, once again, this is not a conversion experience for Nebuchadnezzar. Instead, he's only recognizing another god in his hierarchy of gods. He believed uh, similar to what the Greeks and Romans believed, that there were many gods and some were more powerful than others. Notice how Nebuchadnezzar describes the three men. His servants who put their trust in him yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Does this remind you of Romans chapter 1, verse 1? I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. When you look at that verb there, the infinitive to present, it's written in a tense that indicates continuous action. So really the verse could, be, could read this way, you are to be continuously presenting your body as a living and holy sacrifice. So this is not a one-time decision or action. This is ongoing. Verse 2 goes on, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. What is implied if you, a Christian, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, do not conform to this world? Well, you're going to be noticeably different. You're going to be standing up when everyone else is bowed down. Like the proverbial saying, you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. You will speak the truth, no matter what everyone else says. You will stand against the tendency to conform to the group. Remember the candid camera experiment? And how does this happen? By the renewing of your mind through the power of the Holy Spirit, as we saw in those five scriptural principles. Verse 29, this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Nebuchadnezzar's decree gives immediate protection to these three men. But what does this really indicate? It tells us something about Nebuchadnezzar. If God really is as powerful as Nebuchadnezzar says he is, does he need Nebuchadnezzar to protect his name? Nebuchadnezzar is simply covering all his bets here. He still sees himself as all-powerful, not God. Verse 30. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. And so out of something that appeared to be a terrible situation, God blesses these three men through Nebuchadnezzar. Now, of course, the story isn't over yet. What might have been the reaction of these three young men? Would there be a temptation to react with just perhaps a tinge of pride? Or what about thoughts about getting even with those Chaldeans who had identified them and turned them in? 
Or did they respond with kindness and humility as Joseph did in Genesis 50 when he said, and as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result. And what might be the reaction of the Chaldeans now? Well, we know from reading more in the book of Daniel that they were provoked to even greater jealousy and envy, and they were looking for ways to retaliate. Later on, you'll remember that they devised a way to trap Daniel and have him thrown into the lion's den. And so in this passage, we see the example of these three young men who demonstrated their faith in the one true God with great courage and firm conviction, even in the face of painful death. From Scripture, we have found five principles to follow in order to develop this kind of courage and to develop this, the ability to hold firmly to our godly convictions. First, we must have a proper perspective about eternity and God's sovereignty. Second, we must understand the biblical truth about our trials. We must know God's word and obey it. We must recognize and use God's source of strength. And fifth, we must follow God's training plan as this is a process, not an event. But from this passage, we are also reminded that we can expect our trials to go on for some time. But as Hebrews 12 tells us, Therefore, since we we have so great a, a cloud of witness surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Notice the admonition then in verses 2 and 3. Fixing our eyes on Jesus and considering him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. And then the result, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of these three obedient servants of yours in this account in the book of Daniel. Father, help us to align ourselves with the attitude that these three men had. They were to be obedient no matter the situation, no matter the circumstances, that they would not conform to the world around them. Father, we'd ask that you would empower us through your Holy Spirit to be obedient to your word so that we might be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.